Thank you, Larry. A lot of times when we talk about investments, and we're in this new series, this series that we are calling Five Investments, a lot of times when we talk about investments, we can only begin to think about it in a financial way or through the love gift of, of giving. And, you know, when you, when you think about investment, this is what we tend to picture. How do we put our money into something to collect it? Or how do we put our money into something to make more money? And this is what we tend to think of with investment. But what we've been studying through this series is that there's actually five investments, or as some business people have called them, there are five capitals in the world. And this series has been looking at the five ways in which Jesus invested everything that he was for the glory of the kingdom of the God. Looking at the five ways in which Jesus invested everything he was for the glory of the kingdom of God. We could also say these are the five ways in which Jesus challenges us or teaches us or invites us or wants us to invest everything that we are into the glory of the kingdom of God. And the last week, uh, Bishop Keith launched our series by looking at how we can invest our spiritual lives and our faith for the glory of the kingdom of God. We have four remaining investments. We have financial, intellectual, physical, and relational. Sometimes these five investments, as I said, are also referred to as the five capitals or the five investments. And these are terms that business people will use often, but they are also things that we see appear time and time again throughout the scriptures. Now, in the realm of television, there is only one show on investments that we all watch, Shark Tank. How many of you have ever caught yourself watching Shark Tank? Shark Tank has become one of the most watched television shows. It's one of those shows that when nothing else seems to be on, you watch Shark Tank. In the show Shark Tank, there are six feisty investors, 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 they are a bit of both, I guess. Watch individuals explain their business ideas, their inventions, and their business opportunities. And the individuals are trying to lure or bait the sharks to bite into their proposal. The investor will either then loan money or, uh, for an interest, or they will give uh, money for an agreed-upon equity of their invention. Now, the investors can get sharky with each other and with the person proposing because they want to make sure that they get the best return on their investment. The individual proposing the opportunity tries to give up as little controlling interest or equity in exchange for the investment. Both want to get the best thing for their buck without giving up just too much. The shark's demeanor is central around what do I get for me? Why would I invest in you? How is it going to benefit me? I'm not just going to benefit into you because I like your idea, but what is it that I'm going to get out of it? Like the, other, like the sharks in our culture, accomplishment and achievement have become center to our investments. We find at the center of our investments questions like, what is in it for me? How will it help me? Is it worth my time? Is it worth my money? What will I get out of this? 
in life, most of us want to find the best bang for our buck. And we, truthfully, if we were honest with ourselves, can all be a little sharky with our investments. Most of us are only willing to invest and commit to the point where we still maintain controlling equity and interest of our lives. Most of us are only willing to invest and commit to the point where we still maintain controlling equity and interest in our lives. And far too often in these five areas of our life that we're looking at in this series, we have not actually given up controlling equity or interest in them to Jesus. We haven't allowed them to become investments in such a way that would disturb our comfort, our control, our plans, and our self-achievement. To follow Jesus, we are forced to put the kingdom of God at the center of these five arenas, just like he did. To follow Jesus, we are forced to put the kingdom of God as the center reason for investing in these five areas of our life. And following him, Jesus alone gets controlling equity and interest. For many of us, sadly, this too is a big, too big of a cost. So we have become sometimes Sunday followers. We are much too comfortable, much too much in control, and much too planned to invest everything that we are. There's too much of us at the center of these five areas that the kingdom has very little room. We often wrongly view surrender as something we have to give up in life. For example... My health has declined, so I had to surrender my cabin. My kids got sick, so I had to surrender my vacation. My house needed repaired, so I had to surrender my savings account. But Jesus has a very different idea of surrender, a very different view on what it means to surrender. Jesus says the joyous reward of life actually comes when we surrender our control. And we find the kingdom as the center reason to these five areas. Jesus says that the joyous reward of life comes when we surrender our control and find the kingdom as centric reasons to these five areas. Again, Jesus says the joyous reward of life comes when we surrender our control and find the kingdom as the centric reason to these five areas. We see Jesus' idea of surrender time and time again. If you cling to your life, you will lose it. And if you let your life go, you will save it. If you try to control your life, it's going to go out of control. But if you let your life go out of control, you will find real life. If you try to plan your life, you will lose the path. If you let go of planning, you will find the path. If you try to keep your life comfortable, you will never reach your expectation. But if you surrender your idea of comfort, you will find joy, adventure, and comfort. If you spend what you have, you will find joy, but if you save it with all that you have, you will lose it. Maybe to the rust, maybe to the moss, or maybe just to the IRS. Jesus also reminded, that should have been funnier, come on. Jesus also reminded his followers about living a life of kingdom-centric investment. He challenged us to do it and make it all about who we are. Seek the kingdom of God above all else and live righteously, and he will give you everything you need. Jesus came preaching the kingdom of God. 
He came with this kingdom-centric that was announced, embodied, and demonstrated in everything that he was. We have been reminded time and time again not to seek comfort, not to seek achievement, plans, wealth, control, but to seek the kingdom of God and live by what's right. And there, in doing that, we will find everything with a sense of joy and adventure. What Jesus was talking about when it comes to surrender is explained well by John Wimber when he said, show me where you spend your time, your money, and your energy. Show me where you invest your time, your money, and your energy, and I will show you what you worship. This morning we are going to look at the idea of relational investment. We look how God calls us to invest our relational selves for the sake of the kingdom. Everything Jesus did was kingdom-centric. It didn't really matter if he was investing financially, intellectually. It didn't matter if he was investing physically, spiritually, or relationally. The kingdom was at the center of all of it. For most of us, the kingdom is far from everything that defines our finances, our smarts, our everyday actions, our spiritual seeking, and our relational needs. The kingdom was the purpose in everything Jesus did. This is especially true of how he invested his relationships. For many of us, when we think about what it means to to follow Jesus, we think about giving him our spiritual lives. It's hard for us to think that we also need to give him our relational lives. And I know that most of us don't like to think about him in our financial lives. Jesus did not only exemplify and model that kingdom-centric reality for us in his life. He invited and challenged us to do the same. Today, we look at the power of relational investment, relational investment, and what it means to seek the kingdom above all else in our relationships and through our relational selves. Now, at the core of God, he is community. At the core of who God is, his very identity is Father, the mind, the intellectual aspect of the Godhead, the Son, the incarnate flesh of the Godhead, and the Holy Spirit, the spirit aspect of the Godhead. And they are three individuals who relate equally to each other in a singular form of community. There's a sociological term that describes that. That term where where there is more than one thing making up a singular thing with perfect equity and equality is called relational equity. When used this way, relational equity means that within the relationship, they are equal partners. Likewise, we are created in God's image, and we two are three parts. We have mind, we have flesh, and we have spirit. And as a result, because of being in this relationship image of God, we also desire relationship. We create relationship. We seek after relationship. Those relationships we build with others is defined by trust, by value, or what we might call relational equity. Now, relational equity is a term that's been used many places. Relational equity is a term that has been used in business a lot. It is used when a business realizes that retaining a team member or a customer through good practice is uh, cheaper than treating them like dirt and then needing to attract another team member or customer. It's also when a business builds value through trust, and it is referred to as relational equity. 
Relational equity also describes a level of trust that we build with those that we invest in. Yes, I'm going to trust you with my kids because I have value with you. I've seen you. I trust you. I have relational equity with you. Now, few people take time to really analyze the places in which we have relational equity or should have relational equity. When I was in my teens and just coming back to the church, I uh, wasn't making the church a priority in my life, and, and the pastor who wanted to invest in me wanted to get together and get coffee. I thought that was great, but obviously I uh, did not make it a priority because I would run late a lot of times. And, and one day, Jerry sat down with me, and he said, do you understand the concept of buying a house? I thought this was a weird way to start a discipling relationship. And I said, uh, yes, but I'm not looking to do that. I'm still trying to vagabond the country, right? And he said, you know, when you buy a house, you develop equity in that house. When you pay for something, you develop equity in something. And he said, in relationships, we also have equity. And by you not being here on time consistently, you are not developing relational equity with me. Well, that cut me to the heart. That time was a pivotal point in my journey. I started to, to leave 30 to 40 minutes way in advance so that I could be 15 to 20 minutes early for everything that I did. The way that he said that I wasn't prioritizing him, the way that he could not have value with me, hurt me. Now, far too often, most of us don't live this way because we haven't prioritized the important things. And as long as we are still the priority in our lives, we're okay running late for everything. Now, there was another guy in our church at that time. I'm going to call him Todd. That was not his name. And he came into our church and said, I don't want to hang out with anyone. I'm, I'm a student. I just need to get everything done that I need to get done. And uh, please don't hang out with me. Well, that seemed kind of odd. So we wanted relational equity. Hey, Todd, let's hang out. Hey, Todd, let's do this. Hey, Todd, uh, you know, the church is having a camp out. Why don't you come along? Todd never accepted any of our invitations for two years. Then when Todd finished his schooling, all of a sudden he began to lament that no one hung out with him. Todd began to lament that I don't feel very welcome in this church. Todd began to lament that, hey, I don't feel like anyone wants me here or wants to be with me. What Tom was, Todd, I forgot what I renamed him, Todd was facing was that he had no relational equity his presence was of no value to us. His presence had no trust to us because he had removed himself from the context for so long. When we talk about being in the neighborhood, and, and, and I invite you to be present at our events that we do, and when I ask you to be present at the bonfire that we do, it's to build relational equity. The more people see you, the more people are present with you, the more value that you develop in their life. Relational equity is about serving each other to build it and to show that we value each other. In his article on relational equity, Russell Hilton breaks it down like this. Relational is an expression of relationship over time. And equity is a buildup of value over time. Now this morning, we're going to look at just one angle of this. And Billy Graham said, our relationship must be right with God before it can be right with man. And that is what we're going to look at this morning, how to understand this kingdom-centric uh, center 
through our relationships and relational selves so that we can do this well. Now, we seek that by learning surrender. And Paul writes in Romans, love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love and honor one another above yourselves. So this morning we look at the kingdom-centric investments of our relationships through Luke 16, 1 through 5, through what is truly one of the oddest stories that Jesus ever tells. There's parables where you go, okay, that's Israel, that's God. But in this story, those things are absent from this parable. Jesus is not drawing any conclusion like that in this passage. I invite you to either follow along on the screen or to turn your Bibles to Luke 16, 1 through 15. Now Jesus told his disciples, there was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. So he called him in and asked him, what is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management because you cannot be a manager any longer. The manager said to himself, what shall I do now? My master's taken away my job, I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm too ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do. When I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. So he called in each one of his master's debtors, and he asked them, first, how much do you owe my master? Well, 900 gallons of olive oil, he replied. And the manager told him, take your bill, sit down quickly, and make it 450. Then he asked the second, how much do you owe? A thousand bushels of wheat, he replied. And he told him, take your bill and make it 800. The master commanded the dishonest manager because he had acted so shrewdly. Now for the people of this world, Jesus says, are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than the people of the light. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourself so that when it is gone, you'll be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Whoever can be trusted with very little can be also trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? And if you have not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. The Pharisees who loved money heard all of this as Jesus was talking to his disciples, and they were sneering at Jesus. He said to them, you are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of others, but God knows your hearts. What people value highly is detestable in God's sight. Now in Luke 16, in this story, Jesus tells a story unlike any other story he's ever told. And it's odd for many different reasons. And he, and he tells this story of a rich man who has hired a manager to run his affairs. The rich man begins to hear that his manager is not handling his affairs so well. So he calls him in to his office, and he informs him, you are about to be fired. Fix the books so I can see them, and uh, you're not going to work for me anymore. You've done something shady. Get ready for your exit interview. The manager realizes what's about to happen. And he quickly realizes that he's not strong enough to work for PennDOT. 
and he's, and he's uh, not strong enough to do construction. He's proudfully accomplished, and there's no way he's now going to launch a GoFundMe project or beg outside of the mall for money. The manager realizes all he has left, the only thing that he still has of value is relational equity. He realizes that if he invests what he has, what he's responsible for, the skills he does have, he realizes that if he invests that with what he has left in his clients, he will develop relational equity with them. He calls in the first client and cuts what is owed from 900 to 450 gallons of olive oil. That guy had it really good. With his second client, he owes, he changes what's owed from 800 bushels of wheat, uh, changes it to that rather than 1,000. Now, interestingly enough, this gets back to the rich man who had hired him. And he has to actually compliment the guy and tell him that he's done well. The man had invested in relationships to build relational equity. He invested in his clients in a way that built value. Now, the interesting part about this story is Jews were not allowed to lend money at an interest. They weren't allowed, they were allowed to give money. Oh, you, you, you need some money? I will give you $800. But they were not allowed to charge interest in it. They were not allowed to oppress their neighbor in that way. So interesting enough, as Jesus tells his story, he's actually calling out something that they were doing and shouldn't have been doing. Instead of uh, donating in money then to charge interest, they would borrow in kind. They would say, you can have some wheat, but you owe me more wheat than you borrow. Because it's not interest on money, it's interest on wheat. Or, I will give you olive oil to sell for money, but then you're going to owe me more olive oil because obviously you're going to be turning a profit. They would lend back with oil and wheat as forms of interest. The way they had become to treat each other within this matter did not build relational equity. And Jesus knew exactly what he was doing when he told this story. The Jews had found a gray area around interest. They found a way to still discover what's in it for me with their investment. And through the investment of helping somebody else, they still found a way to put themselves as priority. And they had not fully surrendered to them what it meant to follow God's rules. Now, the religious leaders had treated those in the same way that they were responsible for. They began to treat those people like commodities. They had no sense of investment for the kingdom with the sheep of their, sh- of their flock. The shepherds, the Pharisees, treated their fellow Jews like commodities. They had no sense of kingdom investment in them. This is the story of somebody who saw the clock was ticking down. The time limit was on the clock. The quarter was running out. And he used relational equity for a future purpose. There's still time on our clock. And to what end are we pursuing kingdom-centric relationships? And after telling the story, Jesus offers these following commentaries on surrender and kingdom-centric relationships. Worldly people, Jesus says, are more clever than spiritually-minded people when it comes to dealing with others. Jesus points out that the world does better at relationship, at building relational equity, than God's own people. Why? Why? We've been created for relationship. We serve a God who is relationship. 
and we have a reputation that we are the worst people to work for. How many people have ever heard someone say, never work for a Christian? Have you heard that? I grew up with that mentality. I grew up with that. And there were times in my life where I've worked for Christians that, that lived that up. And, and worldly people are more clever than spiritually minded ones when it comes to dealing with others. Jesus is pushing back. Then he says, I'm telling you that although wealth is often used in dishonest ways, you should use it to make friends for yourself. Having money wasn't a problem, guys. You aren't using it in the right ways. You should use it to make friends for yourselves. And when life is over, you will be welcomed into an eternal home. The sad part is the only purpose of our wealth, whatever it's in, money, oil, or wheat, is to develop relational equity. Jesus goes on, whoever can be trusted with very little can be trusted with a lot. Whoever is dishonest with very little is dishonest with a lot. What God trusts us with is relationship. What God trusts us with is relational equity. Our investment into our spiritual lives should pour out in a way that puts the kingdom centric to our relationship, to our relational equity, to our relationship investment. We should see our relationships as not something that meets our relational need, but as something that we invest in for the sake of the kingdom. Therefore, if you can't be trusted with wealth that is often used for dishonesty, who will trust you with wealth that is real? If you can't be trusted with someone else's wealth, who will give you your own? Now, what Israel had missed up to this point was that what didn't matter was, it, was relationship. It wasn't the wealth of the law. It wasn't the wealth in their bank accounts. It was the wealth of people and their souls. And they didn't deserve anything greater. He, they, didn't trust, uh, they weren't trustworthy or value enough to get more of the goodness of God because, sadly, they couldn't get the first thing right, the most important thing. God's people was what he entrusted them with, and relational equity was what they were supposed to achieve. Jesus goes on, a servant cannot serve two masters. He will hate the first master and love the second, or he will be devoted to the first and despise the second. You cannot serve both God and wealth. You could also say you cannot serve God and relationship. The word for wealth there is incorporating of whatever your investment is in. All five of these things could be substituted there. You cannot serve God and time. You cannot serve God and control of your life. You cannot serve God and relationship. God has to be at the center. Seek first the kingdom of God, and then all else will be added to you. My friend Carl says this about relational equity. You're either building equity or you're depleting equity. This is true in all relationships. Matthew Henry, as he reflects on this passage, says, We have no other way to prove ourselves the servants of God, giving up ourselves so entirely in his service as to make all of our worldly gains serviceable to his service. Whatever your worldly gain is, spiritual investment, relational investment, time, whatever it is, we have no other way to prove ourselves the servants of God than by giving up ourselves so entirely in his service as to make our world again serviceable to his service. N.T. Wright goes on, Rather, it advises to sit light with the extra regulations which we pose on each other. Those expectations are not as important as relationship, not least in the church, which are over and above the gospel itself. 
Guys, the thing that matters the most isn't the rules we adhered by. It isn't the laws we adhere by. It is relationship. Do you know, interesting enough, Barna did some research, and I should have had a slide of this, that the average 20 per something, 46% of those who are 20 to 40, feel lonely more times than not. Over 40% of people in their 20s, up through, I think it was 45, feel lonely. They feel that they have no relationship to depend on. Now, we are in an age of connection. We are in an age where we're always doing this, and we always know what's happening. Why are you updating on Facebook and church? You know, no, I'm just joking. No one is, I hope. But, uh, you know, we are in a time where we are connected to everyone, but 40% of those people, 40 to 46% of them, feel that they have no sense of relationship. They have no value, no trust in relationship. Over 40% of people don't trust their neighbors. Why? Because we haven't taken the time to build relational equity. Money is not a possession. It is a trust. God entrusts property to people and expects it to be used for his glory and for the welfare of his children, not for private glory or glamour. Money also, according to this passage, points beyond itself to the true riches await, that await for us in the life to come. Can't take money with us when we go, but we surely can take relationship into our eternal home. This morning, I think there's three ways that we can respond to this text. This morning, as we close out with this final song in a minute, surrender all of your relationships to God. They are not just your, for your comfort and your needs. Relationships are the most important thing. And, and relationships at the center of them need to be this kingdom-centric way of thinking and understanding. So this morning as we pray and as we close out with song, think about this. Lord, I just named to you that I, uh, I'm a person of relationship. I have a lot of relationships, and I give those to you. Now this week as we move forward, Find yourself being aware where you have not built relational equity in your relationships. Where have you failed to invest? And where have you overdrawn from relational equity that you've had with somebody? And this month, I encourage you to take notes of your many relationships throughout your spheres of influence. I do this often, and it's fun. I, I, I kind of create like a spider web. When you were in school and you're supposed to write a story, they would tell you to start with an idea, a main plot, and put a circle around it. And then everything you want to happen in the story, you do this little spider web off, right? So at the center, I put the thing I'm called most to. And at the center of mine, I, I often split it between the neighborhood and the church. And then off that, I talk about every sphere of influence that I have, okay? Because of that, I am a East Pete uh, minister, the, our ministerium's facilitator. So that's another sphere of influence, and I put that out there. Uh, I live on, not only in East Petersburg, but I live on a block of 29 homes. That's another sphere of influence for me. And I begin to draw all the places that I hold relationship, and then I begin to analyze them. Make intentional effort this month to surrender those to God and invest in them intentionally for the kingdom. Seek first the kingdom of God so you can build relational equity with purpose. As the worship team comes forward, I leave these two quotes with you. You're either building equity or you're depleting equity. This is true in all relationships. 
And relational equity is a, like a bank account. When you bless someone, you put into the account. When you hurt someone, you draw from it. Dietrich Bonhoeffer states that often we just want direct relationships. We want control, we want ownership, we want possession. But folks, relationship is the currency of the kingdom. 